Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Cultural and environmental conservation can be motivated by a number of factors, such as a desire for resources, tourism, or perhaps just an appreciation of the environment. There is no greater motivation for conservation in Asia than that of sacred geographies. And here to discuss that is Dr. Ruth Gamble, an environmental historian and lecturer in the Department of Archaeology and History at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Ruth. You're very welcome. Can you start by uh, unpacking the concept for us a bit? What is a sacred geography and how does it motivate conserving an environment? When we talk about sacred geography, we're basically talking about a way of seeing the world uh, that focuses on the um, belief systems that people have that with which they look at that world, as opposed to, say, a political geography where we divide the world up in terms of like nation states or international boundaries or even state boundaries. You can also have a cultural geography, but I would say if we're talking about preservation, sacred geography is more important. Mm. But it means a way of seeing the world based on your worldview, your belief systems. Yeah. Most cultures have a sacred geography. It's just whether they choose to privilege it or not. Yeah. What about the aspect of conservation? Where does that tie in with what a sacred geography is? So it works in two ways, actually, right? So if, you're having, if you have a sacred geography and you organise your world around sacred sites and connections and pilgrimage and things like that, then there's going to be an uh, impetus to preserve places that are considered sacred. Mm. And there's also, go, though, going to be like this flip side to that where um, because people want to go to places that are considered sacred, you end up with like pilgrimage routes and pilgrimage sites that can be overrun, mm-hmm. right? So you can have like both sides. You can conserve and you can also pollute and, and destroy places because they're loved to death, basically. Yeah, yeah. And that would be a big problem in the modern world where you get just so much religious tourism, I suppose. Yeah, religious. This is a weird thing though, right? Because in so many ways, uh, it seems to me that when we're talking about these things, we are using multiple lenses that kind of don't match. And we even, I honestly think the reason I'm so fascinated at looking at this is we don't actually have a vocabulary for it Mm. in contemporary society. We keep doing things like religious tourism, right? So I don't know that the idea of tourism and the idea of religion actually go together. They're kind of two separate things, yeah. but we don't have a word for it. So that's the way we put things together, right? Mm. So if you're going somewhere as a pilgrim, um, the idea that that's tourism is a bit whack, you know, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but then we don't actually have a word for it. So all the time when we try and understand it and try and put ourselves in different ways of looking at things, especially in Australia, I don't even think we have a vocabulary to discuss these things. And I also think it works the other way, right? Because we were talking about this idea of sacred sites being loved to death. Yeah, this happens in Australia. We love places to death. I grew up in Queensland and I watched as sites became, people started thinking they were magic and then everyone would come and then then they'd get trashed. I mean, Mm. I've seen Noosa go through cycles like that. You know, when I was a kid, it was like this paradise with hardly any people there. And then slowly, slowly people went, oh, this place is great. And then it got overrun and kind of loved to death. And then they had to try and rehabilitate it. Right. So it's underneath the surface, the way that we relate even in settler colonial Australia to sites, but we don't have like an education in it. We don't have conversations about it. Mm. So uh, now extend this to Asia. Right. It's significant for Asian cultures because you're dealing with, in most places, a really long history 
of cultural transmission of looking at places through this lens, mm. through sacred sites. Right? There are sacred geographic networks that stretch all over, particularly monsoonal Asia, but also through Central Asia. Uh, you had traditions of travel for pilgrimage that connected people across the region. And then also within that sphere, people's understanding of the environment and ecological preservation. So ecological and cultural preservation kind of went together. And that preservation was uh, underpinned by a sacred geographical understanding of uh, people's surroundings. Okay. So to uh, to unacademic that just a little bit. <laughs> so, if you, okay, yeah, yeah. I was just trying to think, how does this work? So it's almost as if, okay, this is the way I keep thinking about it. It's like people can be in the same place and see different things, mm-hmm. right? If you're a pilgrim and you're going to a place, then you would go there to pay your respects to the people who are sustaining the sacred practice in that place. And you would go there because you thought that it would change your perspective on the world or it would create positive karma or something like that. Yeah, so you're going to go there with a specific way of looking at it, right? Mm. And then if you come there as a tourist, you want to maybe go there and have a drink and chill out and... Look at uh, the massive statue. Look at the massive statue, take a selfie with it, Mm -hmm. whatever, you know what I mean? So you're in the same spot, but you're looking at it in a different way, right? And I would say that we're dealing with that in multiple ways. People with different ways of seeing the world look at the same site with different ways. And not just tourists, right? So you have... Sacred sites that uh, people, you know, see as being a place of worship. Then you have people coming as tourists. And then you also have scientists who look at that place and say, oh, this is a place of biodiversity. We need to preserve it because if we don't keep biodiversity, we're all stuffed. Mm -hmm. And then um, you also would have people who see that the resources in that place and see that as part of a commodity chain that they can extract things from that place and sell it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And all of these ways of looking at those places can be concentrated in one site and often are and extended out so that we have maps of sacred sites and then we have maps of um, geological deposits and we have maps of trade routes. So we have travel guides that tell us where to go to get the best selfies and the best beer and so on, right? They're all referring to the same place, Mm. but we don't necessarily think about the fact that we're relating to these places in different ways. Okay. Yeah. So is this more of an issue or more noticeable in Asia then because of the the long history that they've got attached to these places? I guess, you know, when you talk about these sort of sites in Australia, you've got Indigenous sites with those long histories. But the Indigenous people aren't necessarily the people who make the decisions about how the funding should be allocated for those sort of conservation kind of things. Where in Asia you might have a different approach to the sites. Yeah, you do, but I don't think that it's right to take like colonisation practices out of it. The sacred geographies uh, have been there for many years and, 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 and often hold within them ecological information and you know sites of biodiversity there's a lot of times where that maps on to sacred groves or wetlands or whatever it is there's a lot of overlap right and then sometimes there's not but the idea of seeing that space as either a place in which species live right so it, like a scientific way of looking at it or mm. a hydrological way of looking at it and the idea of seeing that place as a site, as somewhere from which resources can be taken on a massive scale and sold somewhere else, that was something that occurred through colonisation between the 17th and 19th centuries, mm. right? So there were trade networks before then, yeah, but those trade networks were not as exploitative as the colonial practice was and we've kind of moved on from there. I don't think there's as much difference between Asia and Australia as it may seem. 
Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay, uh, a, a few examples. Can you talk me through a few that come to mind? This is some of the research that I have been doing and will be doing. So I've been looking at, um, for years, been looking at sacred geographies of the Himalaya or Himalaya, depending on which accent you want me to use. There's one place that is uh, Mount Kailash that's just inside on the Tibetan Plateau. It's a sacred site for Hindus. So you often get people coming from India and doing a pilgrimage up to that place. It's also surrounded by four of Asia's largest rivers all start in that site. Yeah, mm. so the Indus, the Sutlej River, the Brahmaputra, and the Ganga, the Ganges as well, they all have their sources in the area around this one mountain. And in that area where there's these sources, there's a, a Ramsar wetland. So Ramsar is a kind of UNESCO for wetlands, right? They're the people who recognize the most important wetlands. Mm. So there's a massive wetland where birds come and nest and then fly off somewhere else. Then it's also a place where there's a lot of gold deposits and mineral deposits under the ground. And not only that, it's near the contested border between China and India. Okay, yeah. Right? So you have these layers of how we look at it, yeah? So you have people approaching this one space with completely different ways of seeing it. And that can create tensions. And the thing that I'm interested in most is how it always seems to be that there's like a naturalization of geopolitical boundaries, so international borders, and there's a kind of naturalization of this place as a site where you can get resources from. Mm. And then looking at it as a sacred geography is something that we see as an afterthought or or something that's like, oh, a nice thing to do. There's like a a real switch in the way that people have looked at the world and we don't normalize having a kind of profound relationship with these places and using them as a way to reflect on ourselves and so on. We normalise resources and geopolitical struggles Mm. in all our conversations. Kailash is an interesting one because for now it's okay. Mm. Um, And there is this, uh, there's a real push to have it recognised because it has the distinction of being a site of multiple faiths. And I would also say that it has nation states who are invested in keeping it sacred, Mm. right? Um, So Nepal, both Hindu and Buddhist country, both of those um, religious traditions are really invested in Kailash, as well as in India and particularly with the uh, Hindu nationalist government. They would focus on the religious aspects of it. And and interestingly, they all have different diagrams of what Kailash means. And and it's interesting to me that the Hindu tradition would say they have the idea that this one lake is the source of all the rivers and it's not really like scientifically. Mm. And, And then the Buddhists have this idea that the rivers come from different parts um, that aren't in the lake. The Hindus say you should swim in the lake. The Buddhists say you shouldn't. That sacred space enables all of them. So I guess another example of a site where all of these kind of incentives for conservation overlap is a massive one like uh, Mount Everest, which is better known as... Jomalangwa. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, or more properly known as Jomalangwa. Yeah, yeah, I said better known as, but that's probably <laughs> dependent on your culture. But yeah. yeah. So that's such a site? Yeah, so Jomalangwa is, uh, or otherwise known in, in um, the West as Everest, is a sacred site. It's supposed to be the residence of a goddess. Uh, Jomo is is goddess and the goddess's name is Langma. Mm. There were prescriptions. The Sherpas weren't allowed to climb it. And every year they still do rituals to say, I'm so sorry for climbing you. Oh, that's a bit sad. But uh, the economic pressures and the geopolitical pressures on the people of that region to lead people up the mountains are much greater than the cultural pressures to preserve it. Right. Right. You know, it's turned into like a, a traffic jam for corporate types who pay thirty to eighty thousand dollars to climb it. Yeah. And put it on their CV. Yeah. In that case, 
you have economic interests and geopolitical, I'd argue as well, interests overlapping or getting rid of cultural interests or ecological interests. Yeah, you know, to some extent that reminds me of the Uluru debate, you know, should we be letting tourists climb it, which I guess we'll get to later on a bit. Yeah. But it's, it's the same kind of thing to some extent. Well, you can't walk around Everest. Yeah, you can. You can? People do. And you walk around Kailash. Mm. The traditional mode of appreciation or veneration for mountains in the Himalaya is to walk around. It's called a kora. Ah, um, yeah. So uh, the way to approach Kailash is to do a kora of Kailash. It takes you three days. Yeah. Or if you're a really super fit, so you've got this right blood type, like if you're a Tibetan and you can like run around at 4,000 meters above sea level, you, like people do it in a day. Okay, so I still don't understand It's an endurance that. thing. It's like point. an endurance yeah. test, yeah. yeah. All of these mountains are on the borders between what is now China and Nepal or China and India that were pilgrimage routes, mm. right? There's another one called Mount Sari in uh, Arunachal Pradesh slash Tibet on the other side that people used to circumambulate every year. Mm. That's what you do. But now they can't, right? So instead of walking around them, the people have started climbing. Yeah. Okay, so how does uh, conservation get wrapped into a site such as that? If you were abiding by cultural norms, uh, yeah. protecting and encouraging the sacredness of Jomalangma, it wouldn't be getting trashed and we wouldn't have to bring like a, literally a ton of rubbish off that place. And bodies. And bodies. That idea of uh, seeing it as something to be conquered is a bit weird. Mm. I mean, even mountain climbers nowadays are like, it's a traffic jam, it's not a real place. Mm. So, you know, you can find other mountains that don't have the same resonances. Mm. So protecting things and keeping them sacred is a way of protecting things by biodiversity in those circumstances. Okay. All right. So how do uh, international agencies that distribute funds approach the concept of spiritual significance? So they do do it, but they do it in this kind of weird way. There's no real mechanism within the um, UNESCO's framework or within the Green Fund, which I'll talk about in a second, that recognises necessarily sacrality. Uh, what they recognise is culture. Mm. So within in the UNESCO system, sites are recognised as World Heritage sites when they're either of cultural or natural significance, right? So somewhere like Kailash, uh, they're trying to put it forward as a UNESCO site that would be both cultural and natural significance. There is some kind of framework for doing it in that way. The one that is kind of more contentious and newer, and we're still trying to figure out the bugs in it, has been set up to try and uh, mitigate against climate change and also to forestall or stop the extinction crisis that we're kind of facing, right, with biodiversity loss. And so the Green Fund has this idea, uh, works on this premise of what they call ecological systems services, right? This is another UN internationally funded system to try and keep us all alive, mm. <laughs> basically. It has this idea that ecological system services is a way to put a monetary value on ecology and what they call economic externalities. So the things that are outside the economic or financial systems, but actually we need to survive. Yeah. And so, for example, you want a place where bees are going to breed and thrive because if there's no bees, there's no us. So you need those kind of ecological system services to keep us all alive. And the way that they set this up is there's like a hierarchy of needs or there's different elements that they position as being important. And the first one is this idea of what resources we can get from ecological systems like food and so on. And the second one is the supporting services. And another one is this idea that they put together culture and leisure. Mm. And within that kind of amalgam of culture and leisure, we have this idea of a, a way of seeing the earth as sacred geography, a, a way of uh, seeing uh, sacrality in the world we live. That kind of gets dumped in with culture and leisure. And pretty far down the list of 
criteria. Yeah, and as and, well. and yeah. you can flip it. Like mm. I know people in Nepal have kind of started flipping it and saying, okay, the first thing we need to look at is sacred geographies and how people understand the place that they live. But the international framework, I'd say as an environmental historian, it's a legacy of colonialism. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It works on this framework of international trade and secondary to that, it works on the idea of scientific uh, knowledge and biodiverse knowledge. And then below that is this idea of culture sacrality and maybe water skiing. Right, okay. Where there's a lot of Asian countries, though, where the sacredness of a site might be a higher priority. Majorly than, higher, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. So if you go into these places, I've been, I've been in several situations where a scientist or a uh, politician has said, well, we need this site for its resources or we need this site because of its uh, biodiversity. And the locals have just, like, lost it. You know, it's like this is our sacred site. This is somewhere that our ancestors have been engaged with for, you know, millennia. And you're coming in here and telling us that that's the third level. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's the third reason that. I mean, um, in some ways, you know, conservation is conservation if it's happening great. But at the sure. same time, you are going into a site and people are saying, look, it'd be really good to preserve this because this is sacred. And they're going, that's nice. Come back to us when you've got a butterfly. Yeah. But then also you end up with situations, I mean, we have in Australia as well as in Asia, mm. where, yeah, a butterfly takes precedence over a, a cultural tradition or a um, – it's even something deeper than that. That's what I was trying to get. I'm sorry to get totally deep on you here. <laughs> but there is a lack of imagination in this, right? If we're going to really learn how to be multicultural, if we're really going to learn how to respect other beings, <laughs> we have to try and see things from their point of view. Right? It's not just about saying, oh, the butterfly saved the cultural site. It's still prioritizing us. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That's still prioritizing a Western economies or whatever it is or worldviews as being normal and everybody else is just weird. Yeah, yeah. So is this sort of concept appreciated or understood in Australia? <laughs> okay, so this was my end to this, right? Yeah. So I grew up in Queensland and I was lucky enough when I was a kid to be a junior ranger. And the rangers that, that we had there, some of them were indigenous rangers that told us the stories and the dreaming for where I grew up, mm. right? So when I went over to Asia and people started talking to me about these mountains, is, is this goddess or whatever, I was like, oh, yeah, without kind of thinking about it. It was just normal to be because I've been lucky enough to be told this stuff since I was a kid. Yeah. So when I was over there, though, and I was, you know, studying and going to these places on pilgrimage and looking at the history of them and so on, I got trained in how to come across sacred sites. There's things that we don't think we've learned about how we do things that we just pick up. Like I was thinking about it today and I was thinking a good example of this is libraries, right? We get trained from when we're a kid how we enter a library. No one trains us how to enter a sacred site, mm. right? But if you grew up in these communities, if you grew up in Asia or if you've been into these spaces a lot, if people are in charge who are keeping the place sacred and you don't do the right thing, you get told off. I remember once I had a hat and I hadn't pushed it down enough at the back and these two grannies came up to me and they're like, can I go to take a talk? Really cranky grannies because my hat wasn't far enough down, right? Um, so, so you get trained on that. Sorry, that was Tibetan for what the hell are you doing? Um, right? So uh, they, they, you get trained on how to behave in sacred spaces mm. and we don't get trained to do that in Australia. So I think that that creates like a disconnect when we try and understand what sacred sites mean to Indigenous people. Mm. Right. And I was lucky enough to go out and act as an interpreter between the elders at Uluru and uh, Tibetan monks. The way that they could communicate and both understood this idea of sacred site, not the same sacred sites, right? But that idea of preserving and uh, respecting sacred sites was something they both understood. It's the Western culture that's the problem here. 
If we want to live properly in Australia, we need to be trained how to recognize sacred sites. And the other thing that I've figured out after that was watching people who grow up in diaspora communities in Australia, mm. they grow up with an understanding of sacred sites. Yeah. Like right. Asian yeah, diaspora yeah. communities, right? So um, what I'm concerned is that we should be learning from them and then maybe looking at the way our policy settings are and so on, as opposed to trying to get people to assimilate to us when we've got it wrong. Yeah. We've got it narrow, I should say. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So uh, in the case of Uluru, which I guess is the most widely known sacred site in Australia, we seem to have got a handle on that a little bit. Like we appreciate that that's a sacred space. You're now not allowed to climb it uh, after years of it yeah. being tolerated. Yeah. But that doesn't really extend to other sites. You know, we've got uh, sacred trees being cut down yeah, in Victoria do. at the moment and, and that being a big issue for certain people mm. but largely ignored. We've got Rio Tinto blowing, blowing up, stuff up. Yeah. things because they've gone, well, we want to mine there, paintings be damned. Mm. And we in Australia put sacredness quite low on the list of priorities when it comes to how we should consider a site. Yeah, we do. And I think, uh, you know, this is kind of our job to fix this in a mm. way. I don't think the Indigenous people of Australia need to do anything. They're doing the right thing. It's us that's stuffing up. Yeah. As settlers, how do we learn about this? How, how can we incorporate it? And you're right, there's a different power dynamic in a lot of Asian communities. I mean, it's not like it's perfect there all the time, right? Yeah. But it has to be taken into account. And you do have like nation states who are invested in sacred sites. And the other thing is that we do have narrations about things being sacred in mm. Australia. They're just not Indigenous sites. Like we, we take the War Memorial as being sacred. They mm. say it's a sacred site, yeah. right? So we do have some things that we consider to be sacred. Other people think the MCG is sacred, right? Yeah. And I don't only say that slightly flippantly. So when an Asian tourist comes to Australia and they go to Uluru, do they get it? Big generalisation. It's not everything. But I do know, for example, uh, that the communities uh, around Uluru, they're trying to figure out ways of uh, making up for the revenue loss that would come from not having people climb the mountain, mm -hmm. right? And one of the ways that they're looking at it is trying to develop it as a place that people will do spiritual retreats. And you do have groups of Hindu and Buddhists going there as a way of being pilgrims or f practices in those sites because they recognize its sacrality. You do have that. Yeah, and it's this deeper thing of recognizing that keeping places sacred uh, is work. I mean, that's kind of recognized in Asia as well. People get compensation and help and it's kind of recognized that this is an effort to keep these places sacred. And I don't necessarily know that we do that enough for Indigenous people around Australia is like recognizing the effort that goes into keeping places sacred. Mm. Yeah, we've got a lot to learn, basically. Okay, well, thanks for your time today, Ruth. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow us both on Twitter. Ruth is at WaterThe underscore planet and La Trobe Asia is at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening.